Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Ali Mogimi, Assistant Professor of Teaching in Remote Sensing and AI Applications of Precision and Digital Agriculture at UC Davis. He is also the Master Faculty Advisor for the new Agricultural and Environmental Technology major, which aims to prepare students to integrate new technologies like AI to solve problems of food and energy sustainability. In this episode, we talk about the applications of drones and other advanced technologies in agriculture, the basic methodology of machine learning, and uses of AI in higher education grading. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Ali Mogimi. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. It's good to be with you guys. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in artificial intelligence? And broadly, what got you interested in the intersection with the ag tech space? Um, sure. Um, so our journey started like a few years ago in 2015 when my wife and I left our country, Iran, and then came to the U.S. Uh, so our, our goal was to kind of pursue my uh, PhD plan. Uh, and we went to Minnesota, Minneapolis. And so I can vividly remember that day uh, we were landing. Uh, it was, everything was like white. It was in January and you can imagine uh, it's just a lot of snow. Anyway, um, soon enough, uh, um, after a conversation with my uh, advisor and, and meeting with a lot of other PIs and labs, I realized that, okay, uh, the bottleneck in the US is different, what, what I was, uh, imagine and so because back in Iran we, we always thought that okay if you have all of these high-tech technology we could solve all of the problems but um, I realized that okay that's not the end of the story so we have access to all of these you know um, non-contact sensing technology very high-tech but the bottleneck is who's going to do the analysis of large amount of data that is collected on a daily basis so I started um, taking uh, computer science uh, courses, uh, machine learning, da data mining, uh, computer vision, these type of things. And I found myself really interested in exploring the data, data mining and data analysis, especially when it comes to data that comes from the agriculture environment. And just see that if you can find some Latin pattern from the data and correlate it with what we are looking for. And so, yeah, that was my uh, kind of a, a motivation and then uh, after that I came to the US uh, to the uh, University of California Davis uh, to start a postdoc position in digital ag lab um, still continuing the same type of research using drone technology and AI to see if we can address some of the challenges that we face in agriculture and uh, after 18 months or so I was hired as, as a uh, faculty with our department biological and agriculture engineering and here I am uh, yeah. That's amazing. Do you, like, have you worked with drones for the majority of your academic career? Yeah. That's, so wasn't that a pretty early in, I feel like drones just now got adopted, right? Uh, it's, uh, with, with all of these, you know, uh, uh, the, the emergence of non-contact sensing technology, you will see more and more. But uh, even before I come to the US, uh, you know, we had a drone in Iran. As, as I said, you know, it was like just a matter of, 
what type we don't we didn't have that type of sensor that we can mount but here we have lidar hyperspectral multispectral a lot of a thermal camera a lot of a compact uh, a very uh, sophisticated sensing technology that we can mount on drone um yeah um drone has been around probably 2000 after 2010 or so um but it, it kind of uh, evolved uh, through the time uh, with all of those technology and then uh, also the drone itself the platform in itself has changed a lot more companies came in and then kind of a, a, was a game changer for some of the research projects that we have done and could you talk a little bit about where those drones are being used particularly in agriculture and go briefly into kind of what those different sensors are you mentioned you know uh lidar hyperspectral kind of at a brief overview what those do okay sure um with with um, um, hyperspectral, it's it's a, a, a sensor that integrates imaging and spectroscopy. So basically, each pixel uh, has you know a, a, we have a, a series of reflectance in across the um, electromagnetic wavelength. Uh, most of the time, from four hundred to one thousand nanometer. And um, so it's it's a data queue because you know we are doing imaging in two dimension x and y uh, similar to RGB, but the difference in the z direction where we have um, a large number of spectral information is kind of uh, we have a continuous uh, spectrum per each pixel, which is amazing. So that can provide some information about plant health and and, and if there's any stress or these type of things. Uh, with lidar. Um, uh, it kind of basically it's kind of similar to radar. It, it sends a signal. It's an active sensor. It sends the signals, and then it measures the time that it it requires for that signal to go hit hit an object and bounce back. And then we know the speed of light, and based on that, we can calculate the distance between the sensor and the object. So. Uh, in agriculture, we can uh, use LiDAR for 3D construction uh, and kind of having a digital uh, elevation model for, for uh, uh, canopies in, uh, in orchards or, um, yeah. Isn't LiDAR a lot more precise than radar? Uh, so yeah, it, it is. It, it, and um, so the difference is the range and then the objects that you are kind of uh, doing. So radar is kind of good for when you have a lot of cloud or you want to uh, detect an airplane object. It's just very uh, bigger and so it can penetrate through those cloud and everything. But uh, uh, LiDAR is just for probably a closer range, mm -hmm. but very more precisely can provide those information. And, and that comes from those wavelengths that we use. It makes a lot of sense. Could you talk a little bit about what the next evolution is for drones, in particular with the sensors? Is what we currently have best fit for the applications we're using, or are they working on newer sensors for the same applications? Um, so I guess that um, we have, currently we have um, a good sensing. Like I said, I think the bottleneck is um, the, the, the processing time and developing models that can be uh, scalable and generalizable to other. Uh, so you said, let's, let's give, let me give you an example. Let's say you develop a model that works perfectly in California for a table grade, for example. And, and but if you use the same uh, model with same sensor, but in another, uh, uh, the same crop, but another location, you may not get a good result. Uh, so these these are like the bottlenecks. So with, with sensing, uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, 
we, we are done with the sensing technology still uh, we can have uh, more advanced sensing that they can provide higher spectral resolution higher spatial resolution and and, and uh, so these are all what we uh, appreciated but um, something that's kind of uh, uh, could not keep the pace with sensing is just the analysis and um, so I think that's that's where the AI comes in and we hope that we can use that yeah could you talk a bit more about your specific research then and how you're integrating AI and UAVs and drones and all those different things uh, sure. Um, so um, I think that I already touched on, on the, the, the problems that we have. It's just a large amount of data uh, comes in. And so with the drones, you have the ability to collect data. Even on a daily basis, you can go out and collect data. And, and so that's great. So we don't have any problem with the temporal or resolution or a spatial spectral resolution. It's just how we're going to do the analysis. And so finding a pattern and uh, among all of these large data sets and see how we can correlate it with what we are looking at is is what I'm interested in I'm working um, so f one of the big concept and and projects that I'm interested in I've been working is phenotyping and see if we can use this technology to help breeders identify which crop can produce more yield or which genome line is more tolerant to a specific stress like uh, salt stress for example or any uh, biotic disease or abiotic disease um, uh, with the AI, uh, so we we need a lot of annotated data sets, and so that that's why it's a little bit behind in agriculture. We don't have that much, you know, annotated data. So we just we, for the training model, we need to know, okay, um, uh, so this is the data comes from. Uh, uh, sensors and so we should kind of for training a model we should kind of provide also the label so and that is something that uh, is kind of a, a limitation that we have in agriculture and so we're, tr we're trying to see if we can develop models that they, they can perform with lower number of uh, training that we have in agriculture but at the same time we would like to see if we can develop models that they are scalable as we discussed and we can generalize it on other crops or other uh, 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 regions. So yeah, that's the goal. Is it possible to make models that are scalable without losing precision? Um, so yeah, um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, pr uh, a, a challenge, uh, honestly. And, and so if we, we're talking about, uh, overfeeding issues that, okay, your model performs well on a data set that you have, but once you test it on another data set, it, it kind of, uh, does a poor job. And if you wanted to kind of make sure that it performs on everything, so you have to have regularized, I don't want to go through the de details, but yeah, it's kind of a deteriorate the performance at the first play. It might not even uh, learn and uh, kind of a, instead of overfitting, now we have underfitting, so it doesn't perform well. But yeah, it's 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 challenge. Could you define a couple of the terms you've been using? You've been saying like temporal resolution, spatial, spectral. Oh, Could you just define sure. some of those for people who don't know? Absolutely. Um, so temporal resolution refers to you know uh, 
interval between the time that we collect data. So with, with satellite, uh, with, for example, with Landsat, it's like eight, 16 days. So it, it revisits uh, each location every 16 days. But with, with drones, we can, uh, like I said, we can go, go out and do the imaging every day. Mm -hmm. And so it's pro resolution is higher. Spatial resolution refers to the pixel size. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that is something that we probably kind of have a sense about that. Um, spectral resolution is, it refers to two things. First thing is the number of bands that we are scanning with RGB, regular uh, camera, digital camera that we have, or, or our cell phone camera. It, is, it, it uh, does the imaging in three bands, red, green, and blue. With multispectral, it does it in usually between five to 10 bands. So spectral resolution increasing with hyperspectral. Uh, usually it's more than 200. Mm -hmm. So we are scanning in 200 bands. So that's number of bands is one thing. And then also the width of the band. So with hyperspectral, it's kind of narrower, uh, but with the uh, RGB is kind of, we, have a, we, are, we are dealing with a broad spectrum. And when you say red, it, it's kind of a, a broad spectrum around a red region in this electromagnetic wavelength. Perfect. And then when you talk about training AI, and having annotated data sets. Could you explain like, what annotated data sets are and why they're needed to train the AI? Um, absolutely. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the way that it works, so we have, I guess, supervised and non-supervised learning. With supervised learning, um, uh, we, we uh, want to say the model, okay, if, if this is the data, this is the output. If this is the data, this is the output. And then model start kind of learning and finding uh, patterns between the input data and an output, kind of a map from the input and features to the output. And and then after, you know, we just feed a lot of training data, okay, this is the input, this is the output, then we ask the model, okay, uh, we believe that you learn now, this is the input, you predict what, what would be the output. So this is the uh, supervised learning and processing and label data. So for example, if uh, in agriculture, if you want to predict yield, uh, using uh, aerial imagery, we say, okay, if this is the image, this is the yield of the crop, and this is the image, mm -hmm. this is the yield, and 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 then uh, next year or for uh, another uh, 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 kind of a time, say, okay, this is the this is the data. Now you predict the yield. Mm -hmm. So that is the annotated an annotation part. So it's kind of hard to have all of those yield data at at, at that. Uh, spatial resolutions that we have. Uh, it's just, uh, we are talking about centimeter or sub-centimeter. Sub okay, that makes a lot more sense. And so we talked about supervised and unsupervised and how that plays into machine learning within artificial intelligence. A lot of people hear these terms, machine learning, AI, big data, blockchain, you know, all these different things. I guess kind of neglecting blockchain that doesn't really play into this, but could you speak to where those different pieces fit into each other in terms of what is the top of the umbrella and where do the other they may parts define okay, a little yeah. bit of each the top of the umbrella uh, is is ai and then machine learning is a subset of ai and deep learning is a subset of machine learning uh, and so it's kind of a, a, a and just want to there are so many different definitions, but uh, if I want to put it in a simple sentence, I would say that it's just the uh, computers and machines can learn from historical data that we have to to and, and the observations that we provide and and ask them to predict something in in future. Do you think AI machine learning will struggle at creating new things if it's always based on something from the past and historical data? Could you elaborate on that or? If you're training an AI mm -hmm. to 
produce an output and you can only give things that have happened in the past or data from the past, will it be able to extrapolate to create new ideas, new predictions that haven't happened before? Um, it depends on you know what what type of uh, AI we're talking. So, for example, we have you know um, natural language model Chat GPT. So, I just wanted to say a disclaimer that I'm not a computer scientist, mm-hmm. and I don't want to say, but I'm, I, I, I focus on applied machine learning in the ag environment. But just to get back to your question, uh, um, yeah, so that can learn. And then with ChatGPT, you can say that it can produce sentences. It can be really kind of a, a creative and, and then have a on and on conversation with a human. It's hard to even distinguish. Um, and so, but with, with imaging, for example, if you wanted to predict yield, then it's it's kind of uh, hard to say that, okay, you learn to, predict yield in uh, like cornfield. Now with the same model, we expect that, so you just be creative and then predict yield in almond trees. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not gonna work. And it, it, it really re- relies on what has, has learned. And that's why we, and that this is another bottleneck in, in AI and ag that we have to have different range of AIs for different applications. Mm-hmm. So if it's gonna be for this type of crop, we have to have another model for this type of crop. We need to develop and train another model. And, and But who knows, in future, we might have those type of things that can perform uh, better in when it comes to kind of uh, other crops and other fields. Yeah. So we've been talking about AI and a lot of these high-tech applications in agriculture, but historically, it, at least in my understanding, agriculture isn't seen as a high-tech space. Can you talk a little bit about how that sentiment is changing? Um, sure. Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree that agriculture uh, kind of lagged behind and couldn't um, keep the pace, failed to keep the pace. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on agriculture uh, when it comes to meeting the growing demand and, and also, uh, you know, off-season demand for different crops. And at the same time, we have water shortage, we have land use, we have climate change, so many other things. And now everyone is talking about, okay, we wanted to do that, but we want to uh, meet the goal, which is kind of um, meeting the demand, but in a more sustainable manner uh, that we have less uh, a footprint on our environment and with, with using less resources. Uh, so technology is imperative part in this cycle and we need to kind of uh, use technology, this, all of these sophisticated technology. Well, we have to use them uh, if we want, if we're going to address these type of challenges that we have and like food security uh, problems and concerns that we have and also preserving the environment. So technology is a big part. And then could you speak to why that creates the need for such an interdisciplinary focus within the agriculture sector? Because if you have climate change, flooding, or all these different issues, how one sector can't like just solve it themselves? Um, well, so let's, you know, we have grand challenges in agriculture. Again, I mean, a food security concern. The, all of these grand challenges, problems 
they need multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach. It's not like one discipline or one student can solve. I mean, I don't, I don't even think that we can solve. We can mitigate and mm -hmm. alleviate that uh, if if we put all of the pieces together. Uh, agriculture is very complicated, complex, very dynamic, and so it involves a lot of components. So um, here at University of California Davis, we have you know. College of Ag and Environments, so many different disciplines, and they are working on totally different things. In, in our department, uh, we are working on food engineering, water, uh, energy, robotics and automation. So very different bioproducts, wearable technology. Um, so we need to have all of those components work together, plus growers, plus policymakers, and, um, and, and an extension to educate growers how to use these. So we see that it's kind of a chain and it's just a lot of components that they, they have to work together if we are going to address those challenges. So it, it is definitely interdisciplinary approach. Do you think academia communicates well enough to properly do that? Because you're talking about, for oversimplification, in this building we do robots and automation. How often do you walk across the quad to go talk to the other people and how to implement those properly? Um, yeah, we we, we does uh, uh, we, we do that, and uh, I, like I said, it, this is something that we have to do. And sometimes because um, so, if you are doing, if you are working on on a topic, on if you're agronomist and doing something. At some point, you need someone who can kind of uh, help you with all of those sensing sensors, and you need someone else that knows the background and how how to do the analysis. And then we need agronomists to interpret the data. And and so okay, so a computer scientist can develop probably the best model, but when it comes to interpretation then we need another person that can kind of uh, from physiology or I mean, depending on the top, uh, the, the uh, subject that you are uh, studying. So each of those team, they have to work together. And, uh, and then, so they bring their knowledge and then to address that, that issue. So definitely uh, it is something that we have to do, but at the same time, um, I want to go back to your uh, first note about academia. So in academia, I guess that, uh, I think that we have to, to focus on two more things besides the research. And one is make, make sure that uh, we are preparing the next generation of ag scientists and, and then ag professionals. And at the same time, you know, we have extension specialists. So they have, and their responsibility is to educate growers. And uh, so, you know, yeah, yeah, we are talking about all of these technology and, and uh, disruptive technology, IoT, AI. But, um, the next generation needs to be prepared how to use it, how to implement it, uh, uh, and how to kind of even develop a technology for agriculture and environment. And at the same time, growers needs to be educated how to use it properly and uh, just be aware of the limitations or benefits that they can offer. So this is where academia can help. Do you ever struggle with publications and research because the technology is so new and so disruptive because I think in other sec sectors, like if you're coming out with this novel new idea to get it peer reviewed and published could be a challenge because it might go against the grain. Do you ever run into that issue with your research? Uh, no, uh, personally not, but I don't think that that would be the case. I mean, um, uh, 
So there, there. Are, so if you can kind of justify that this technology can be used, you know, in this way, and then um, uh, kind of a, uh, get a meaningful result, I think that everyone would would acknowledge that. Uh, so this is a good contribution. So I don't think that that's a problem. That's good. We're talking about how it's important to notice how these things apply across different disciplines, and that kind of got my brain think about when we do apply these technologies, high tech things in agriculture, they require a lot of energy. Can you talk a little bit about the pacing with energy efficiency and how that's really crucial with these new implications with tech that if we apply them across the board now, that's just going to be a massive input of energy that we also have to keep up that will lead to more climate issues. Could you speak a little bit about why it's so important to make sure that as we apply these things, that we're still being cognizant of the fact that putting something high tech into a system isn't necessarily going to solve the issue of sustainability alone? Yeah. Um, so sustainability is is honestly um, a b- big concern. And so it's not just like, okay, we're going to go this route and then so we're going to meet uh, and our objectives, but uh, like I said, uh, we have to make sure that we we meet our objective in a sustainable manner. And so, an example is that you're right. So, the example would be so. Yeah, we we uh, have you know all of those uh, uh, cloud processing power that we have, but uh, you know those uh, uh, hops, you know they they might consume more energy uh, for you know kind of storage data and then just be cool and then it's a high performance uh, technology and so yeah they might have adverse impact or like EV cars and you know, I'm I'm not an expert but I've heard that you know yes they are you know um, uh, environmentally friendly but the, the production of uh, batteries it might have adverse impact on the environment so we kind of see okay this is you know we solve the issue but it might bring some more other challenges so we have to be mindful about that yeah i think that's i mean it's a very simple topic at at its basis but i think that's an important thing to to drive home a lot of people especially in the media get caught up with oh there's all these new things coming out and they neglect the fact that the system will maintain dynamic you know as you continue to solve problems new ones will come up Mm -hmm. and we have to be aware that it's never going to be you know a blank slate solution yeah, I agree. I think the first thing is to acknowledge and awareness for, for anything. So just awareness is, is the big thing. And then after that, if you know that, then people will start thinking about it. Yeah. Could you describe what preci- precision agriculture is? And is that the future of agriculture across the world or across the U.S.? or? Maybe how is that being implemented in different places? Okay, uh, precision ag has been around for for more for more than a decade or so, and it's so just um, um, it, it's a management strategy, and so it's uh, how how we're going to collect data and how we're going to analyze the data to address the spatial variability that we have, and the goal is to manage our resources better. And so the example that I, 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 I always talk in my classes is, okay, uh, we, we have four R's. Uh, we're gonna use a right resource uh, and then apply that right resource at the right time and right place. 
with the right amount. And mm -hmm. so, so you can see that it's kind of, a, we have a lot of variability across time and space in ag. And so we wanna uh, be uh, mindful about the resources that we use. So that is precision ag. Uh, but now, um, uh, recently, you know, we, we, have, we hear a lot about digital ag, which, mm -hmm. which refers to using all of these digital tools that we have and kind of leverage the power of, um, you know, this disruptive technology and harness the power of AI, IoT um, in agriculture to, to see if we can promote crop production and at the same time preserve the resources and, and our environment. And so yeah. Could you define IoT and how it's going to be implemented in the agricultural space? Um, yeah, IoT stands for uh, Internet of Things. So uh, again, an, another technology that is used in other industry a lot. Mm -hmm. And so in agriculture, we um, uh, the goal is to use all of network of sensors, for example, that they can uh, kind of uh, communicate with each other without you know, this kind of a machine to machine without uh, a lot of human interference. And so they are all uh, connected together through internet. So that's why we say internet of things. And and so uh, then they are connected to uh, a microcontroller processor that based on the data uh, and do the analysis make decisions and then send command to actuators and, and then actuators will, will kind of uh, do the job that mm -hmm. is based on uh, some data that collected by a network of sensors. So for an, an example would be uh, irrigation. So you collect some data across the field and then just the uh, microcontroller does the processing and then say, okay, um, at that location it uh, needs to be irrigated with that amount of water and when and, and how and these type of things. So it could be fully autonomous. Are we there yet? Um, yeah, in, in some parts, it, it is it is commercialized and it is used, but is it like in full capacity? Is it is it applied in all ag, mm -hmm. ag sector? Not yet, but yeah, we have we have, we, it, we started seeing some commercial right. stuff that they help. Uh, if you had to put a crude like estimate on how advanced the agricultural space is, if we're saying the most advanced is fully autonomous. Internet of Things, networks running and operating the field by themselves with like self-driving tractors and all that versus using their hands with like manual tools to go out and farm. Like where do you think we're, where do you think the majority of agriculture is right now? Or maybe if it's, that's too broad, what like, are the different areas and like how big are those areas? Okay. Um, so Tough question because you know we have. Uh, I was talking about variability within a field. We have that type of variability across you know the globe. Mm -hmm. and so you know we uh, uh, even even within a you know one country, a big company like U.S. or in in Europe. So you see variations. So, so focus is different. So we have an area that they just really focus on. Uh, uh, gene engineering and so that this type of technology and and also we have area that they, they, they're really in um, automation indoor uh, agriculture mm -hmm. vertical farming or um, so it, it depends it depends and it's kind of hard to say but what i would say is that uh, yes we have uh, different groups and different um, uh, institutions that they are all working on pushing the boundaries back and using all of this technology uh, from automation 
either in the field or indoor or um, you know gene editing uh, gene engineering or iot and ai and drones technology using satellite even um, yeah so we, we we have all of those technology and then they are applied in different domains but it's not something that i could kind of see this is a lot of variation mm -hmm. is there a particular area within the farming cycle talking about like pre-harvest post-harvest that you think that precision agriculture will fit best in in terms of ease of application uh so based on the definition of precision ag probably i mean in post-harvest it may not be um, a right uh, sector to use it like i said it's just precision ag based on the traditional definition it's just uh, dealing with the variability that we have in the field but if we talk about you know digital ag and using all of those digital technology um in a, in a control environment so that we don't have a lot of you know we don't have that dynamic and variation it might be easier to use technology and so you can see that a lot of technology is used in factories but the same technology if you want to send it out to farms it's totally a different game and because of all of those variations and dynamics that we have uh, so yeah in controlled farming or post-harvest per se. Um, so yeah, I'll, I, I can say that um, technology can be used uh, uh, with, with less hassle compared to the field because it's very complicated. Yeah, because I think, I don't know, for me, looking at the US, it's I'm pretty sure the number is like 40% or something quite large of our post-harvest crop yield is wasted. And so I think it'd be a really interesting thing to see as we have these digital technologies applied and we have clear data of what is being waste, mm -hmm. finding ways to make that more transparent, to make people, like we're saying, like aware of really how bad the situation is on its worst day. Obviously, like America does a great job of feeding its people broadly, but gathering more awareness of where we can fix things and inspiring the younger generation to have a clear understanding of where they need to go. Yeah, um, I haven't done uh, research on, you know, uh, post-harvest so to, to give you some statistics that where we are uh, and now, but that, that's an active research again in, in our department. So it's really uh, interdisciplinary, uh, as I said. Um, yeah, again, I would like to emphasize that uh, awareness is the first thing. And we, we just wanted to make sure that people understand and we honestly in the u.s uh, we have a lot of waste even after post harvest we have a lot of waste in restaurants for example so yeah when when uh, my students sometimes they talk about you know food security they say that okay i mean it's um one aspect is food distributions so we might have a lot of resources alloc allocated to you know certain categories and peoples but uh, i mean is it going to be uh, you know with, with equity in mind, is it distributed uh, equally and with equity-minded approach? Uh, so yeah, we have a lot of wasted. So again, awareness is the first thing, but I don't have any stats to say. That makes sense. Could you maybe highlight a little bit more specifically what some of your research is and where do you see it going? Um, Sure. So I'm an assistant professor of teaching, and so, um, so I don't have a lot of this active lab, but I'm still trying to kind of be involved in different uh, research areas. 
So uh, one research that I'm actively now working is to see if we can automate uh, students' assignments and, 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 and do the automatic gradings using you know, these large language models and natural language processing techniques. And the motivation is to, you know, develop some tools that the students can use for self-assessment. And, mm-hmm. and so it's not only, yeah, it's going to help instructors uh, uh, to provide right content, uh, to provide feedback at, at, at the right uh, frequency at the right time. So that that's great. But also I'm kind of thinking that, okay, so students can use that as a tool for self-assessment. And also, you know, it, it can solve it can kind of address other issues that like, for example, being biases uh, with, mm. with the person who, is, who does the grading. And, but, so that's, that's one thing that I'm uh, working on it. Uh, we are at the early stages of that. And, but yeah, we got a really good result in a data sets that we got from Michigan State. They, they, uh, they were kind to share with us some data that they collected across multiple institutes in a biology class. We got mm. really good accuracy and it is, uh, it is generalizable. Um, so the other uh, research that I'm working on uh, is uh, wildfire uh, detection mm-hmm. uh, using satellite data and deep learning and see if we can kind of detect wildfire at kind of a, um, uh, at the earliest stage so we can manage better and help, help uh, uh, firemen to, to make better decisions and in more informed decisions. And from that, the goal is to uh, move forward and create a susceptibility map that kind of help us to identify hot zones that they are prone to wildfire. And so wildfire is, is obviously a big concern in California. So yeah, these are um, two main, so one is disciplinary, mm-hmm. one is related to curriculum uh, 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 pedagogy and uh, that grading, and one is disciplinary. And also I am collaborating with Digital Ag Lab in our department. So they are doing top-notch research in drone technology. So I'm kind of uh, collaborating with them as well. So uh, like I said, I would like to um, be, uh, stay uh, uh, updated with all of this research. Yeah. I mean, it's three kind of very interesting areas that don't necessarily play into each other, but I'd like to touch on the grading first. You talked about how they had very high markers of accuracy. Could you talk a little bit about what accuracy means in that setting? Um, absolutely. So we, so the way that we did is that, so we, um, so again, the data uh, came from Michigan State University. So they collected data from multiple institutes um, and um, uh, across multiple years. So the instructor is different. Students were obviously different. The institute was different. Um, so, um, but it was the same question from intro to biology class. And so they shared the data with us and it, it, it was like about more than thousands of samples that we had. So we trained a model. Uh, it was, uh, uh, we used Google Bird as a, a language model that we use. And then uh, in the second round, they, they collected more data again from the same institution, but uh, 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 more broadly, different again, instructors, different students. And our model that was developed on previous years or other institutes could perform good uh, with the new data set that comes in. And so we have the labels, we talk about the labels. So, so we have the labels which a human graded those uh, uh, sample questions. And then so we have the machine grading. So we kind of compare 
how well is that? So it, the accuracy was more than 90%. Mm. And so once we go back and see the majority of the uh, kind of inaccuracy comes from uh, uh, certain classes. So just want to give you briefly. So they divided, uh, the, the grading was done in a way that the uh, human graded all of those samples into three categories. It's correct response, it's incorrect, and it's incomplete. So with, with incomplete, this is the tricky part. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the AI uh, enabled model kind of struggled with in, incomplete because it could kind of be either an incorrect and also corrected one. And so something that they did, they had three instructors with the same training, do the grading, and then the agreement between them was 80%. Mm -hmm. And then that comes again with that inco incomplete part. And so some of them are more strict. No, this is not correct. Or something, okay, no, I can accept that as a correct answer. So, so that's why the uh, um, uh, uh, AI model kind of struggled with that. I'd imagine that'd be really good when it gets to the stage of application at the university level of freeing up the time for TAs and for professors? Because I would assume that you don't enjoy grading assignments as much as you do doing your research or you know doing the actual teaching. And I think that's a really kind of valuable key thing to consider is when we're first faced with that idea of, oh, AI is going to be grading your assignment. I think a lot of people are going to be like, oh, whoa, like I, I paid for this school so that I could get real feedback. But the other end of that is if we don't have people grading the assignments, they have more time to push the research further. You could talk a little bit about kind of that aspect of freeing up the time, more creative time for academia? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I Honestly, I agree the consent that we have. And, and so, I mean, the machine is it kind of does the grading and is it fair or not? That is something that we have to kind of keep keep in mind, but we are not there yet. We just want to see, okay, if kind of proof of uh, concept, can we do this, and at what uh, uh, accuracy and, and and what step, and then we just we definitely we have to keep that in mind that some students may struggle. They are they they may not uh, English may not be their first language. The way that they put this kind of um, uh, form a sentence uh, model might be a little bit. Kind of bias, so yeah, th th we have a lot of consent, and I agree. And so, we gradually we're going to get there. And but again, the goal is that we have to keep in mind that you know we have if you have a large class, and if you wanted to provide immediate feedback and at, at kind of a, a, with a good pace and with the right content, it's it's so hard, especially with large class setup. And so you, you have to skip some of those things. And so it definitely helps the instructor uh, teams to spend their time more on, uh, you know, pedagogy and curriculum development and kind of uh, more interactions with the students. And, and so they can offer more office hours instead of sitting and doing grading for three hours a week so they can uh, kind of sit down with uh, students and, and uh, talk about what parts and what topics they struggle more because, you know, AI can kind of provide a lot of statistics for us, what topics majority of students struggle. And so we can kind of uh, uh, get some patterns and learn from that and then uh, kind of uh, reshape the, uh, what we're gonna do next week based on the data that comes from this week. So it can really help us. 
But uh, I agree that there are a lot of concerns. So a lot of uncertainties and unknown things that you have to keep, keep that in mind. Could you define what a language model is, how it learns, and wh why biases can be present within the models? Uh, yeah, so it can uh, it can be biased because you know you you um, the model trains whatever you feed to the model. So if your model is trained on, you know, uh, uh, students' responses, again, going back to our example, that, okay, they are uh, uh, native speakers, and so English is their first language. So the, the model is trained based on that data. But if you have a person that uh, and comes from another country and um, they, they kind of put the sentence in a way that a human can read and understand, okay, I mean, sometimes even it's, it might be hard even for uh, uh other people to understand, but it would be a little bit difficult for for AI because it was trained on something. And so uh, the other thing is, is, I mean, it's not even uh, in, in language models, it can be in anything, it can be in a convolutional neural network. So if you, if it's like face detection, if you feed a lot of, you know, uh, based on the data on the internet and for face detection, so it might be biased to toward, you know, uh, white mm -hmm. people uh, rather i mean few like for example african-american or hispanics it might be biased because we don't have that much data in our training data set at the first place so the algorithm kind of learns better those aspects and and just very really few uh training that we have so we have to keep that in mind yeah and could you define what the language models are because i think people are just now getting familiar with them at a broad scale with ChatGPT and now the new version, ChatGPT4. Could you define some of those and how maybe it's going to be implemented within academia? Yeah, it, it it's, uh, so again, um, so I, I, I tried my best to define it, but again, I'm not okay, a computer yeah. scientist. Uh, so it's, we have a, a corpus of data and, 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 and uh, the data is in this context is text data. And so we have uh, this type of uh, models that they can kind of, uh, uh, first thing is kind of uh, vectorize the data because that's text, kind of vectorize it kind of, and, and then see that uh, uh, it's like similar to, a uh, good example is similar to auto completion. So you type in a few words and then a Gmail offers you this is the, the the next word that you can kind of uh, finish your sentence. So this is like language model. So based on your question or based on the concept, it tries to, it has a lot of similar things, uh, have, have, have observed all of those training, and then it tries to generate a response to that. With the wildfire research that you're doing, we talked about how some data sets that you build or some models that you build aren't easily applied across the field it seems like with the wildfire model it would be something that could be applied i know you're doing it in california but it could be applied across the world because some of those like the topography or the you know the soil whatever those metrics are seem like they could be easily applied broadly could you talk a little bit about that and whether that assumption is true yeah uh, i think uh, th that's a fair assumption that it, it's going to work on. So, uh, but we have to keep that in mind that so we have different sources of you know uh, fire. So is it kind of a natural uh, wildfire happening in forests, or is it like uh, something that you know 
it, it, it was caused by uh, human intervention or like, uh, uh, I don't know, like those, those power lines that we had that, that incident a few years ago in California. And so that, those are different things. But if it is like, uh, because of, you know, um, it, it, evapotranspirations because of, you know, very dry or we have, you know, precipitations and then uh, other component like uh, uh, moist soil moisture or uh, humidity slope or aspect uh, wh where that uh, slope is facing, is facing north, facing south, east, and and so on and so forth. So there are so many components, but uh, 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 our assumption is that it's going to be uh, that model that trained in California hope, uh, w would be applicable to other locations. Uh, we don't have that much variation, but um, we, we have to test. This is kind of a hypothesis, but um, we're going to do it and see how it works. Is there any way to test for data that you didn't tell it to test for? Uh, that might not be worded right. More like you just said the slope of the hill facing north or south. That would have never entered my mind of possibly impacting a fire. Could AI take in a large amount of data and be like, you were focusing on these three factors, but actually take a look at this fourth factor? Um, yes, we have something that is called feature selection. Now, mm -hmm. uh, when, when we have, you know, we use these machine learning models that you feed a lot of um, uh, features, like, like we mentioned some of them, and then the AI or the machine learning models, they kind of uh, find what are the most informative features that they can kind of, they are highly correlated or they can provide some um, uh, uh, information that we can use to predict the, the output. Uh, so it's not, and, and sometimes, you know, when, once you have a, a lot of, we provide a lot of features uh, with deep learning, they, it does it usually a good job that it assigned lower weight to them and it kind of ignore them and then pay more attention to mm -hmm. those stuff. So we can kind of understand uh, it's a little bit complicated with deep learning, but with um, uh, machine learning, yes, we have feature selection models that we, it really help us to identify the informative features. So that would look like you know the three or four main factors, and that's what you teach it on, but then you give it... So let's say we would assign it like 10% this, 50% that. It learns, and then you give it a whole new data set be, and then it's a, you go assign your own values and what is the most important thing based on those, based on all the factors we give you. Uh, is that a generally correct way of looking at it? Sort of. Uh, mm -hmm. Let me give you an example and explain it um, um, through an example. So this is, this is what I, uh, uh, I know we have been working. That was my, part of my PhD project. Um, so we had hyperspectral data. So like I said, it's like a, 250 bands and so but we know that all of those bands they don't contribute to the output and so some of them are really highly correlated with each other some of them are redundant but we don't know because you know so this is a new study so that was like a salt stress study we just want to help usda identify it was a usda lab that we tried to help them identify which uh, genome line is more tolerant to salt stress so we don't, we didn't know, okay, um, among all of these 250 bands, do we need really all of them mm. or which of them is kind of highly correlated? And then um, machine learning models help us. And, and I can remember that I had six different models 
And then four of them identified 589 nanometer as the most informative band. And 589 is, is, is like around orange area. It's mm -hmm. like between red and green. And I was like, why? It's just, I haven't seen 589. And I uh, started looking around and did some research and I found that, okay, that is actually among Fraunhofer line. And that is related to the sodium absorption band. And I immediately contact the USDA. What, when they say salt, what type of salt did you use? And they say sodium chloride. Mm. And so, and, and then, so it kind of, it was really uh, uh, interesting that the models could kind of identify that wavelengths and correlate it with some, something that happens in, in, in the plant because yeah. sodium, sodium chloride kind of ionized to sodium and chloride. So yeah. we could kind of do that. So that is feature selection. So we know that these are the important features. And for the next time, if you want to use hyperspectral, we don't need to use it. We just use, mm -hmm. develop a custom design sensor, multispectral event with two or three bands so growers can use it better instead of dealing with all of the complexity that hyperspectral imaging has. That makes a lot of sense. So we talked about how AI can help with learning, especially with data. A lot of people broadly outside of academia, when they hear AI, they might have a little bit of trepidation about what that means for them. Can you talk a little bit about how the application of AI and the application of automation might actually serve to benefit humanity? Um, so it's, it's they are around, so you know, uh, there are a lot of decisions around us are, are currently made by machines. And so, I mean, look at your cell phone is, is a good example, or when you use credit card, is it gonna be decline or not? And and so uh, when you watch a movie in Netflix, then the next one is recommended to you. When you, when you purchase a product from Amazon, and then on, on another computer, you can see advertisement of related products. So it's, it's around us. And, and so it's not, uh, something, but you know, once you realize, okay, this is based on this algorithm, then people might see that, oh, I have some concern about privacy, where we are going. So, which is legitimate. And, 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 and I agree. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, um, even in, in, um, here, uh, for education, some the research that we are doing, you know, automatic grading is something that sooner or later will will be a lot of AI enabled educational tools will be available for students to better understand um, some of the concepts. Uh, so now people are talking about gamification, using AI to develop some games so students in high school or even at the uh, even at the kindergarten level, they can understand math or some of the concepts better. And so that that's AI can be powerful, but I agree that it, it, it comes with some, since it comes with some uncertainty and unknown things, it might brought some concerns. And so that is uh, uh, something that I understand and, and it, it's fair. Do you think we have enough safeguards in place currently so that when those unknowns become knowns or when concerns become a little bit more clear, we can be able to mitigate those properly? Um, it's a very tough question. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I think that uh, going kind of 
I, I try to borrow some of the uh, sentences and words that we, we just had today with together. So the first thing is awareness. Again, I want to go back and also education. And I, I remember I was talking about educating the next generation of, of students. And so um, you could see that uh, students at and nowadays at, at like high school students, they are really curious about AI, how it performs what is under the hood and and so they are uh, really curious at the same time people at middle age they might be kind of kind of a worry about that and so yeah we have that curiosity we have that concern um yeah honestly i'm not sure of where we are going and but i but but i am um uh, optimistic because every time that we have new technology uh you know just give you an example. So students are now a little bit worried and, and also other uh, faculty worry about the um, chat GPT and, mm-hmm. and, and education and a kind of uh, integrity in our uh, campus and in general in education. Um, yeah, I, I understand, but I said, okay, the first day that calculator came in, so we had all of those concerns. How is it going to help us? I mean, it's going to be, our mind would be a little bit lazy. We're just going to rely on, on a machine that can do a lot of things. But nowadays, uh, it, it helps us a lot. It, it saves by saving some time. So yeah, we, we have to learn some of the math because we need that to interpret the result, to yeah. formulate the problem. Uh, so if you don't know those, if you don't have those skills and if you don't know those knowledge uh, to formulate the problem and how to interpret, then it doesn't make sense. But chat GPT or those AI things can help you and facilitate that transition. It can be transition in education or it can be a transition from you know, bringing AI or other technology to the farms and health growers. Yeah. I think that's a huge thing people don't fully get is you're still asking the questions. You still have to be creative and thinking. You just might not have to do the more menial task. And if you go on our website or read our descriptions for a lot of these podcasts, a good majority we're not writing. We're using ChatGPT to edit them quickly and get them out. And we take a podcast description that Kellett writes and reads, and then we put it in, and that becomes... I'm like, okay, I need it at 400 characters because for search engine optimization, which I know nothing about, it needs to be a certain way. And I give it to ChatGPT, gives it back, cool, proofread it, yep, put it in. And then same with writing an Instagram caption. I'll, we'll take that original one and be, all right, put it in. And now it's five words and it's a little flowery and because it's on social media, it needs to be. So you still have to think and is to reread it and be like, okay, that that one didn't make sense. I have to give it a better prompt this time. And how do I change how I do that? So I like the calculator. You don't become brain dead. You just think maybe a little bit differently than you've been used to. So I just wanted to highlight that also. That's a great example. That, that uh, Honestly, that's a great example. But, you know, um, just want to um, add more on it. And so you, you initiated... Mm-hmm. these kind of things okay let, let's so you you identify the gap you want to help i think that uh, students to better understand the campus better understand the research and so you uh, you have the critical thinking you have creativity and now you use chat gpt to help you to meet your goals mm-hmm. which is fine 
and then uh, it can it can uh, help you to, uh, like I said, uh, rephrase uh, your sentences, whatever. And then at the end, again, it, it's it's you that you know, how you want to present it, how you want to uh, uh, kind of a, a advertise and, and and kind of uh, present it to 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 uh, to audience. Uh, but without technology, would be a lot of other works for you. Mm. But now you can spend more time on, you know, finding people, making network, expand your network and connections. So that that's a good example. Yeah, definitely. I, I really like that idea because when we look at what areas we're trying to fix in the future broadly, education is definitely one of them that needs reform. And I like how we've been talking about like AI could be that catalyst to then have that reform. Because right now people are like, oh, well, it should change. We should be doing things differently. But no one really knows how to start that change. Whereas AI, we're going to be confronted with more and more AI, more and more di digital tech as we grow. And so I like how that can kind of just become a natural catalyst point to then rethink how we want to have education and center it more on asking the right questions than finding ways to answer them. Yeah, I agree. So as we kind of are wrapping up here, do you have any general advice to students? Do you want to highlight certain new things on campus? Sure. Um, I think that uh, I would like to um, uh, just speak a little bit about the new major that we mm -hmm. have in our uh, department. Um, so we have a, uh, our undergrad major um, um, is, is hosted by College of Engineering. So it's a uh, so our, our, our department is kind of unique. It, it's affiliated with both College of Engineering and College of Ag and Environmental Sciences here in uh, here at UC Davis. So our uh, a major uh, undergrad major was hosted by College. Recently, um, you know, we we launched a new major. It it was launched a few months ago in fall, and so the name of major is uh, Agricultural Environmental Technology. And again, the, the, the motivation again is that we wanted to make sure that next generation of uh, scientists and uh, uh, ag professionals, they are equipped with the knowledge and the skills and ability that is required to, to use, implement, develop these type of technology-based uh, solutions uh, in, in agriculture and environmental science. And at the same time, uh, it's not, the, the, the courses that we are designing, this new major, we are developing a new curriculum, obviously. Um, the students, they don't need to dive in through what is under the hood and uh, what, what is the math and physics behind that. So we, we have like a AI course, we have IoT course that is kind of focused on, uh, focus more on uh, applications, how to use it, what type of uh, uh, problems we can address by, by this technology. So at a very high level, very hands-on, students can, can learn those concepts. Uh, so hopefully once they graduated, um, they, they can uh, kind of be entrepreneur and, and then uh, at the front line, uh, helping the society and stakeholders to address the issues that we are facing in, in ag and environment. And could you talk a little bit about the tracks that are available to students within the new major? Um, yeah, we have, currently we have three tracks within a, uh, the major. One is digital agriculture track. Uh, the other one is uh, energy and also bioproducts and wearable technology. 
so these are like the three tracks, but um, they're prone to change depending on, okay, um, I mean, we have to, this is something that it was made decisions by faculty, but we have to bring students and learn about their interests and, and kind of see that uh, where they wanted these tracks or courses go. And mm-hmm. so in the kind of consolidate the needs, the expertise that's available, students' interests, and then uh, offer tracks and courses. That sounds super interesting and a little bit more like a liberal arts degree within the agriculture and environmental technology space. Kind of like you're touching on all these different little things. You get a good overview. You might not be inventing the new version of that drone, but you're going to be able to learn like, okay, I can use that drone and this piece of technology and this is where we can go together with it. Yeah. And and so since they, they need to take, you know, um, uh, uh, ag-related courses, and so they can interpret the result. And mm-hmm. That's a key thing. So we, we, we don't necessarily want them to develop, like we said, a drone or new algorithms in AI, but they can interpret the result mm-hmm. because they have that knowledge established in, in biology and in, in physiology and uh, those type of things. Oh. For anyone listening, that's one of my majors. And I can say from a student's perspective, it's been... The classes that I have taken have been some of the most fun that I've taken at college so far. So I highly recommend it to anyone that's considering. Amazing. Amazing. Do you have anything else you want to share? um, Thank you so much again. Thank you. uh, It it was uh, really interesting. And I hope that your audience will also kind of uh, find it uh, interesting and informative. Thank you again. Thank Thank you, Professor Mugimi. It's been wonderful. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.